New Jersey is providing truly historic tax relief. Living in New Jersey is about to become more affordable under the new Anchor Property Tax Relief Program created by Governor Murphy and the legislature. The state will soon deliver over 2 billion in tax relief to more than 2 million homeowners and renters. Eligible New Jerseyans can receive up to 1500 apply today even if you didn't qualify under the previous program you may now the deadline is february 28th visit anchor.nj.gov Hey immigrantly family it's Sadia coming at you with an episode that is going to flip the buzzword wellness on its head but before we get going i want to say welcome to our new listeners and hello again to our old this podcast could not be where it is without all of you democratizing the experience of immigrants one story at a time every week i sit down with a guest to discuss anything and everything that falls under their immigration experience or rather their human experience Have you ever asked yourself what does it really mean to be well and on the other hand feel unwell where does this language come from and what does society tell us are the characteristics for this notion think about it well today we have Dr Mimi Cook who is a writer teacher and a scholar of things unwell a pedagogy that examines humans relationship to the world and themselves as one with differential unwellness because of the structures around them mimi is a professor of asian american studies and disability studies presently she lectures at georgetown university and is the 2023 activist in residence at flourish at the university of toronto scarsborough Beyond Academia, Mimi is the managing editor of the Asian American Literary Review and has appeared for talks organized by institutions like ACLU, Ford Foundation and many others. Before this conversation with Mimi, I must admit the term unwell was no more than a descriptor. I hadn't realized that there is this entire study and practice dedicated to centering unwellness beyond the human body. Mimi and I chatted about current wellness trends, why they can be harmful structures of productivity. We connected this to notions of resilience and grit especially in immigrant communities and finally we also talked about ways to take care of ourselves and each other amidst this messiness. It was indeed a thought-provoking, unique and in incredibly fun discussion. I'm glad you all are here. So let's get started. Welcome Mimi to Immigrantly. I am really excited. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I've done over 200 interviews and this wow. is the first time I struggled. What? Yes, I struggled <laughs> in a 
good way, in a way which leads to discovery, which leads to change. Because as I was doing research on your work, I was struggling to understand what it really entails. Mm, mm. And although I was so intrigued by it, and it's fascinating in so many ways, and there are bits and pieces that really spoke to me, especially about moving away from unwellness as an individual pathology Mm -hmm, to a collective mm -hmm. endeavor and looking at it that way. I have so many questions. And if I sound stupid, just ignore it. No, Uh, never, (laughs) never. I I love all questions. I tell my students that we're on this journey together, right? So all questions have to be asked. And if you have a question, that means other people have the same question, right? So it's, it's always a good thing to ask and to be kind of humble together in the process. Right. So we'll start from the beginning because there are a lot of people, a lot of listeners out there who may not know about this new pedagogy. So let's start with how do you define unwellness? You started with the big question. Yes. (laughs) The beginning, but also the big question. So I've come to use the word unwellness to capture our experiences of suffering, pain on an individual level, but also on a collective level and on a structural level. So what are the forces around us that contribute to us feeling like shit, essentially, (laughs) is is how I've defined it. Um, And I choose the word unwellness in the context of mental health, in part because I feel like I don't have a problem with the word illness, but it comes with a lot of baggage. When we say mental illness, all kinds of narratives pop up in our head. We particularly draw on this kind of psychological model of individual pathology. We think of mental illness as a particular disorder that an individual faces. You get treatment. Hopefully you get better by going to the right doctors or getting the right kind of modalities. And for me, unwellness feels less attached to that model and a way to capture a wider set of experiences, but also in a way that we can locate it in a different context, the collective, the structural the forces around us, how we share experiences Mm -hmm. of pain and suffering, and that they're not just individual things that are wrong with you, but things that are wrong with our condition, the context in which we live. So we are looking at the broader society. Right. So systems of oppression, racism. Exactly. All of those systems and structures contribute to our unwellness. But you say something which is so profound. You say All of us are unwell. All of us are unwell. I mean, you mentioned these systems of oppression. My first question is, how can we be well in that context? Right. That contradiction we pretend doesn't exist or we're told it shouldn't exist. But what is wellness? This is such a good point, Mimi. In my mind, when I think of unwellness, I think about it in physiological, physical Mm -hmm. way. So if you're unwell, if you have a disease, then you're unwell. Or in terms of mental unwellness or illness, the first thing that comes to my mind is depression, anxiety, different kinds of disorders that people are diagnosed all the time. I don't think of unwellness as this universal phenomenon that exists Mm. because of where we exist 
in society. Mm -hmm. And that is such an important and incredible discovery that I made by researching your work. That that you're unwell too. Yes, I am (laughs) unwell. Although I will say this, I have talked about being anxious and I've always had anxiety or that's the kind of relationship I have with mental wellness or unwellness. Mm -hmm. But to think that I'm unwell by existing Mm. or being in this world, that is next level. That is so, so intense. So let's talk a little bit more about that because all of us are unwell. Why aren't we seeing it? I love the language that you're using to talk about unwellness. You're taking some of the ideas that I've worked with and putting it in your own language around being unwell just because we are here. I love that framing of it. And yes, it really shifts the ground that we're on to think about our existence as one of unwellness. And I like to say differential unwellness, meaning we're not all unwell in the same exact way. And we're actually not unwell in the same way throughout our lives either. So much of our unwellness is about change over time, but also about our different relationships to different structures of oppression and unwellness around us. I love that I've already convinced you, though. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, you have. (laughs) I've already convinced you that we're all unwell. And for me, it is both very simple and very profound at once. Because what makes it profound is that we actually don't think that we're unwell. Right. We've been told that we're supposed to be well and wellness is normal. Wellness is the normal state of being, right? And unwellness or illness is the aberration, is the once in a while temporary condition. Because wellness, especially physical wellness, means more productivity. It means more output. Exactly. And so to be productive, to be a contributing member of society, you have to be well. Um, And to be well is to be good, like moral. Right. To be unproductive is like something is wrong with you. You're lazy. Those are the words we use. And so we actually have a layer of morality and value judgment on wellness. It's not just a descriptor of our state of being. It's a prescriptor. It's a prescription. You're supposed to be well. And so we have this, what I call compulsory wellness, the pressure to perform wellness. Because if you don't, you're seen as a failure. And sometimes that wellness or perception of it can be smothering. It's our own wellness. It is, right? The pressure to pretend. Yes. Is actually what contributes to our own wellness. That is the ultimate contradiction and irony for me is that we are all trying so hard to prove that we're well, to prove that we're good, to prove that we belong because so many forces tell us we don't belong. And that makes us sick. And so for me, that is why we're all unwell. We are all facing these pressures to be a particular kind of human. Mm. We have an idea of what like a perfect human is supposed to be like. And a perfect human is supposed to not be sick. Perfect human is supposed to be able to work under capitalism. And strong. This language of strong, resilience, all that language. Always, always. (laughs) Yeah. And so to not be those things is to fail. And that's very scary for a lot of us, especially for, I would say, like marginalized communities. The stakes of failure are really, really high. So we have to work even harder to pretend even harder that we are well and the cost is actually our wellness. Right. But sometimes, maybe especially for marginalized communities, this impetus or trigger to work more or work more Mm -hmm. than everybody else is not a choice. Right. It's what they have to do to survive. Right. 
Right. right. It's the conditions here. Right? It is the conditions here. So if I want my kids to succeed in a racially hierarchical society, my kids as non-white kids, they have to do something extraordinary right. to compete with their white counterparts. Right. It's as simple and as complex as that, which is such an unfortunate reality. Yes. The stakes are so high. The stakes are so high. It is so dangerous to not perform at this extraordinary level for so many of us. That actually, for me, contributes to why we have such a hard time admitting that we're unwell. Right. So maybe let's talk about the genesis of this pedagogy. And from my understanding, this is an emergent method, but something that was created by you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell me, was it something that you saw in your surroundings Mm -hmm. that bothered you or particular scholars that you were really impressed by or fascinated with? What was the genesis of this framework? Yeah. So the framework um, that I've termed a pedagogy of unwellness started Actually, I would say not with scholars or books that I've read, but in my own experience of being deeply unwell uh, after I had my daughter. She's now 11. But when I had her, I had postpartum depression in the first year, but no language to talk about it. Right. And I was like, where is this supposed joy and meaningfulness and satisfaction that I'm supposed to get as, you know, becoming a mother? This shit fucking sucks. Like, motherhood is awful. (laughs) First year of motherhood was awful. And I hated it. Tell me about it. And I thought something was wrong with me because all the forces around me told me I was supposed to be happy. And so I felt like a failure. And then after a while, I was like, fuck that. I need to find better ways of understanding what's happening to me. It can't just be that I'm a failure. Now, this is where the scholars come in, in my training in Asian American studies, ethnic studies, women's studies, feminist studies, have already told me that there are systems around us that hurt us. So I tried to bridge that with my own experience and realized, oh, there are lots of expectations around motherhood. There are lots of stories around motherhood that are actually contributing to why I feel the way I do. And I have no structures in place that take care of me. Hmm. The narrative of the super mom requires that I don't actually ask for help from anybody. Yeah, just fucking lean into everything. And then be the best mom ever, right? (laughs) And if you can't do that, then something is wrong with you. So that was my first kind of entry point into thinking about unwellness. I was experiencing unwellness that I didn't have language for. Hmm. And then the second entry point was my students. So I've been teaching in Asian American studies and now in disability studies. And I was watching my students be extremely unwell. When you work with Asian American students in college, something you will see is that they have some of the highest amounts of distress Mm. among students. They have some of the highest rates of suicidal ideation. And as I was watching my students struggle, attempt suicide, watch their friends (laughs) go through these kinds of things. We are unwell, but we are not willing to actually look at it or we don't have the tools to look at why we're unwell. Like, why are my students feeling this way? And they're getting straight A's as they're doing it. Yeah. High levels of distress and high achievement at the same time. And in psychology and behavioral sciences, high achievement in school is usually a marker of wellness. Yeah. (laughs) They don't measure unwellness unless you're doing bad in school. And so Asian American distress often is under the radar for students because they're doing well in school. Because how they're performing. Right. They're high performing. So nobody says that they're not well because we're conflating again wellness with achievement and productivity. Right. My own experience of unwellness coupled with my students' experience of unwellness basically told me that we're all unwell and that what would it look like if we started there? 
instead of starting with the idea that we're well and occasionally some of us break. What if we started with we actually are all dealing with awful things all the time and are broken in so many ways and are trying to survive that? What does that open up for us if we're allowed to admit that? That's the kernel of a pedagogy of unwellness is starting with the idea that we're all dealing with awful things and it's okay. Mm. It is normal to be unwell because being unwell actually is an indicator of what's happening around you and not an indicator of a personal failure. Mimi, as you're talking, I'm thinking even the term unwell may come across as negative at times Mm -hmm. because it does have negative connotation. Why did you choose this particular term? I wanted to reclaim it. I wanted to to reject that kind of negative connotation that you're talking about because I saw the power of what it does for people when you give them permission to be unwell. So I started in my work basically creating spaces where people are allowed to admit and be vulnerable. And it has a huge, powerful impact when you're allowed to say, this hurts, I need to rest, I need to stop, I can't ignore this anymore. And I'm there to say, Of course, nothing is wrong with you. Of course, that's awful. And to validate someone's experience of awfulness, the kind of healing that can happen from there, the kind of community building that can happen, and the kind of structures of care that we can start to build for a community collectively when we're all allowed to admit that we're not doing okay. Maybe I really like the idea of embracing unwellness as a collective endeavor, right? That's at the heart of what you're trying to do. But at the same time, How do you think we honor a person's unique experience with trauma simultaneously while embracing this notion of collective undertaking of wellness? That's a great question. I would hope that thinking about us as all being unwell does not erase the particularities of individual experiences of unwellness. And I hope that my approach of thinking of it as differential is a way to kind of capture that Mm. because we have different relationships to institutions, to policies, to structures that cause those kinds of traumas that you're talking about. I'm hoping that the language of unwellness allows us to share in it, but still be able to talk about the particularities of how it has manifested in your life Hmm. so that we can connect with each other, but not erase those particular and individual experiences as well. So the tools that you're laying out or providing Do they cater to individual experiences of trauma as well? I think so. I hope so. You know, so I work in the arts and the humanities. I don't approach mental health in the usual psychological, social science ways. What I've seen with the humanities and the arts, the tools that you can create allow for individualized personal interaction and process that actually I think psychology erases. Mm. Psychology tends to try to universalize and say, This is what a disorder looks like. Here are the five traits, how it presents. And it presents the exact same way across everybody. And this is how you treat it. That's what the DSM does. Right. The Diagnostic Manual of Mental Disorders tries to lay out encyclopedically all the different disorders and what they look like. And while I understand that that can be helpful to name things, that actually erases so much of individual experience. And historically, you know, like people of color, queer folks, trans folks have not been able to find themselves in the DSM in easy or unpathologized ways. Mm -hmm. That's very clear to me that that doesn't work to capture those experiences you're talking about. And so I think tools in the arts, tools in the humanities that take into account issues of race, gender, sexuality, ableism are more able to be personalized in those ways.
Let's talk about the tool. Yeah. So yeah. in 2016, you led the publication of Open in Emergency, a special issue on Asian American mental health with the Asian American Literary Review, which basically includes a few things. So there is a tarot card deck. There's a pamphlet on postpartum depression that centers around mother of color experiences. And then there is a mock DSM. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to listeners how do they help people reconcile and reckon with their unwellness and work towards bettering themselves if that is the goal or just recognizing their unwellness? So tell me about the open and emergency box. Yeah, thank you for calling it a box because it is a box um, and not a book in the usual traditional sense. So the project came out of my own desire for finding language for unwellness for myself, for my students, and realizing that Asian Americans needed a way of talking about unwellness that hadn't been available before. As an academic, people always want books. A monograph or a collection of essays are the traditional ways of thinking about how to gather knowledge. Those felt very limited to me. Hmm. We've tried that. For me, it wasn't capturing the breadth of Asian American experiences of unwellness. So I said, why don't we just ask people? Hmm. Ask people what hurts. Give them permission to answer it. And so much opens up. So it's such a simple process for me. And then be willing to listen. Hmm. My partner, Lawrence Minboy Davis, who's the uh, editor of AALR, worked on the project with me. And we hosted a series of dreaming sessions where we would either go to a conference or meet with, you know, artists and organizers, scholars to ask them basically, what would they want to see in a project on mental health? Or ask them to reflect on what hurts in a new way. And after a series of those, that's what led us to start dreaming up the different components of open and emergency. It's a really kind of grassroots start from the bottom, asking questions instead of trying to answer the questions before you ask them, which I think some scholarship does. And so then the parts started coming together. What are the various things we want to capture about Asian American experience? What have people told us? And then what are the forms that could best capture that? And I think the question of form is what is very exciting from ALR, what it's willing to do that's outside of kind of a regular academic context. Tarot cards are not seen as scholarly, but became a form that felt so generative to not only capture Asian American experiences, but become a tool for doing wellness. Not just knowledge presentation, but knowledge production with a user. The person can actually use the cards to think about their own sense of unwellness while drawing on Asian American studies, Asian American experience, the things that were kind of encapsulated in the cards themselves. And then like the mock DSM, right, was a way to intervene in, again, knowledge production and who gets to be an expert. Not psychiatry. I mean, they are one expert, but why are we also not allowed to be experts Mm. of our own experiences? I really like that concept, Mimi. But this is a culmination of work of a number of scholars, right? Right. As far as I can recall, almost 80 scholars who worked on this. Actually, no. So 80 contributors, but only a few are scholars. So lots of writers and artists as well. Right. Yeah. My question to you is, how representative is it of ordinary folks like me? Mm. Mm. At the end of the day, It sounds more like an academic exercise to me, whether it's just scholars or writers and artists. 
And every time I think of tarot cards, I think of this mythological, almost used exclusively by psychics, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Culturally, I don't connect with tarot cards and I am a South Asian woman. Confession, I don't either. (laughs) (laughs) My question is, what would you really say to a person like me? Yeah, yeah, yeah who is struggling to connect because I looked through a lot of them on the website, Mm -hmm. adoptee, refugee, mother, migrant, and I was trying to read through it. And I kept thinking, is it my conditioning? Is it how Mm. my brain operates? Is it because of the way I view tarot cards in general Mm. that I'm unable to connect And believe you me, I've listened to so many podcast interviews that you've given. Oh my goodness. (laughs) It was interesting because everybody else, at least most people in those conversations understood what you were saying. Mm -mm. So as a South Asian woman, as a Muslim woman of color, I found it challenging to connect. Mm -mm. And I wonder, what would you say to somebody like me? Oh, I really appreciate that question. And I appreciate that you've listened to a bunch of podcast interviews. That's amazing. (laughs) Thank you. It's a real honor. And I appreciate this question because the point of the work is to connect with people. And so a couple of things that you've said I want to address. Is this a scholarly project? Yes and no, in that it does involve some scholars and the scholars are definitely humanities scholars. But This project actually freaks out a lot of scholars because it's not traditional scholarship Hmm. and because it's so artistic and it's willingness to do weird stuff like tarot, which is not considered scholarly at all. And like you said, it's considered quite mystical. So I would hope that it speaks to a wider audience than scholars. But I will also confess that tarot has not actually been a part of my like experience growing up at all. I'm Vietnamese American. There's lots of fortune telling practices in my family, but tarot cards in particular were not something that we drew upon. Right. So I had knew nothing about it before I started the project. But I watch friends do tarot. And tarot has had this wild resurgence, I feel like, in the last decade or so, especially by marginalized communities and queer of color communities who are looking for meaning-making practices. So I'm seeing that as well. So I was watching some of my friends do tarot and I saw the power that it had for people. And this is using the traditional tarot deck. But for me, Similar to what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. It didn't speak to me personally, but I saw it speak to other people. So I thought with my partner, what if we could create a deck that spoke differently because it draws on our experiences? Because the traditional tarot deck are Italian medieval playing cards. Right. What does that have to do with my experience, right? As a Vietnamese refugee, right? right? When we call anything universal, that just really means European or white, right? Absolutely. So let's take the word universal out of there and draw very specifically and ground it in our experiences as much as possible. And so that's why we came up with those different archetypes, renaming them to try to capture Asian American experience. And so we invited lots of different writers and scholars and artists who were all very freaked out actually about the tarot project because none of them had ever written a tarot card before because it doesn't exist as a genre. Right. Most tarot cards are images only and not text. And we were asking people to write a card that helped explain what this card means and how a person could connect to the card. And we tried to draw across the breadth of Asian American experience as much as possible. 
but there are gaps. There's always going to be gaps. Right. And so part of the process of making it has been continuing to listen to community as they engage it. What speaks to them? What doesn't speak to them? We created an expanded deck in 2019 to start to address some of the gaps that people were noticing in the, you know, in the original deck. Mm. I have found that folks who have engaged the tarot cards, even if the card doesn't come from their community in particular mm. or doesn't engage an archetype that makes sense to their community. For instance, like if you don't come from a refugee community, right, but you pull the refugee card. Right. Can you make sense of it or can it connect with you? Some people have said, yes, they can find something in it. And there's no right or wrong answer to how you read these cards, right? So I'm hoping people can find something in a reading that speaks to them. I want to hear more from you, though, about like the disconnect, what's not helpful about it. And that is not at all like trying to put you on the spot or like trying (laughs) to convince you. But I want to know because I want to make sure that work that I do continues to speak to people's needs. It could be a number of reasons, right? How I've been conditioned every time I've been in distress, Mm. I either go to my family or my faith. Mm. And I think for me, that has been central to sorting out my problems. And then recently I started doing therapy where I just sit with my therapist and talk about different stuff. And I was very skeptical of therapy because I thought nobody would understand South Asian experiences, Muslim experiences. And obviously in South Asian culture, therapy is tabooed. But when I started having those conversations, I feel like my therapist and I, both of us learned from each other. Mm. So she had to recalibrate her tools and her experience Oh, to I'm my so glad needs. she was willing to. Yes. Yeah. And I was able to understand where she was coming from. Having said that, when I looked at your open in emergency box and when I looked at different art forms in the box, I was definitely intrigued. And that's why I wanted to read through those tarot cards. But for me, as I was reading through it, I was struggling to connect with it Mm. on a level where I could feel calm or I Mm. could feel as if I was working towards reconciling with my unwellness Mm. in a way. And that's where the disconnect happened. Yeah. There's something else that I want to ask you. Now, this idea of collective unwellness, that's something that really blew my mind away because nobody talks about it, Mm -hmm. especially in a society like the US, which is hyper-individualistic. Everything happens at an individual level. And to some extent, the collective has to be weakened for the individual to prosper because that leads to the state to prosper, right? So it feeds Mm -hmm. into capitalism. Right. But at the same time, what I still struggle to understand is that the onus to some degree still lies with the individual who is seeking to understand their unwellness, right? So ordering open an emergency box, opening the box, Mm, understanding the process, understanding the tools that the box carries. Walk me through the process of this being a collective endeavor versus traditional forms of therapy where I have to book a therapy session, spend an hour with my therapist, talk about all kinds of shit and then just, you know, pay 
a lot of money. A lot of money. Yes. A lot of money <laughs> because it is a privilege. Talk me through that. A lot of money, but it shouldn't cost a lot of money, right? Like it should not. It should, it should not. not. And I say that because for me, that is actually the collective element. Hmm. We should have structures of care that we can all access ah. individually or collectively. And so for Open Emergency, the project is collective in multiple ways. One, obviously, 80 contributors is a collective, right? right? It's way too many people. Don't ever do a project with that many people. But it's a collective trying to do something. The other way that it's collective is that it's trying to understand our experiences as not just individual experiences. I love that. So like theoretically, framework wise, trying to understand us as collective. And then the last part, what your question brought up for me, which I enjoy a lot, is thinking about how to use it collectively. Right. Yes, you can use it individually, but I've tried to develop actually lots of collective ways of engaging it. You've tried it with your students, right? My students are my guinea pigs. So <laughs> I try everything in the classroom with them and, and love getting their feedback on stuff. Students know what's up. And this generation is so amazing in their willingness to really talk about mental health stuff. Yeah. And their earnestness around it and sincerity and the bravery around doing the work. Me throwing weird shit at them, they're totally game and they give me great <laughs> feedback. And so some of the things we've developed is how do we use the tarot deck collectively? What kinds of activities can we do to build community through these resources? I've come up with some. Other professors have used them in their classrooms as well. I've actually had therapists use them in their like group therapy, which I find amazing as a practice. I have no idea how to do that, but I love that someone else has done that. My students come up with ways of using the cards with each other and with their families, ways to start conversations, ways to connect with each other, ways to give permission around certain things they haven't felt permission before. People are very creative mm. and want to do things together. That's very clear to me. You know, I am almost tempted and I may do that to order open an emergency and just experience it personally and then also with friends and family. Yeah. It would be an interesting experiment for me, a shift from traditional therapy mm -hmm. and traditional clinical methods, but it's definitely worth trying. And I'm so fascinated by this idea of accessibility. Yeah. I did not connect the two until you said it. Mm. When we think about collective endeavor, collective also means accessible. Right. And in a place like U.S., a lot of times therapy is not accessible to a lot of people. To most people. To right. most people. Right. Exactly. Bimi, tell me this idea. Can it apply to places outside the U.S. or is it framed in response to structures that are unique to the U.S. As I was reading through your articles and listening to podcasts, I was like, okay, how would this apply in Pakistan or Vietnam, where your parents are from? Right, right. Have you thought about that? Have you explored that idea? I have thought a little bit, not a ton, but because my expertise is in the U.S. context, right? But I've watched folks from other countries by open an emergency and find ways of using it. So that already I'm like, whoa, what are you doing? <laughs> right. Tell me, what are you doing? And give me an example. I actually have someone right now, like who's emailing me from Sweden. He was like, we want this project. We want to think about how to use it in our context for thinking about unwellness here. I find that fascinating myself. Like, how does this speak to your context? Right. I want to, I want to know. 
I would definitely say that I do not think that a project focusing on Asian Americans can exactly speak to experiences in other places for other communities. That's just not possible. But what I think it does is open up ways of doing the work that can transfer and apply. The questions that it asks, I think, are transferable. The methods that it uses can be applied in other contexts. So I would hope that folks on the ground in different communities are able to now better ask questions about what hurts, what their unwellness looks like, and then be inspired by open emergency to find their own creative ways of capturing those things. Do you think beyond that, it is also dependent on dynamic between marginalized and the dominant population and that framework will change? I think you're exactly right. Those dynamics in the community and in the systems of power are going to look different in different contexts. There are some things that feel a little bit global, though, like the World Health Organization, (laughs) right? And their definition of mental health, which I talk about a lot in my work, that does feel overarching and reaches in in many, many places and maybe not exactly the same way, but it's one force that feels much larger than just one place. And then honestly, the U.S. reaches everywhere. Right. And so the way that the U.S. politically, militarily, culturally defines things does affect other places in differential ways. Do you think therapy in the context of unwellness is irrelevant? No, not at all. I'm a huge fan of therapy. I love therapy. I have like three different therapists. <laughs> so yes, I'm a big fan of therapy, but it is one tool. Right. And it is one quite limited tool. It cannot be the answer to everything because again, it's a very individual approach. But yes, we need individual support. It just can't be the only support. How can therapy solve everything if you're still living in a system of racism? Absolutely. Your therapist can help you process stuff that's happening, but they can't stop the racism from happening and the actual real harm that that racism does to you. And it's cumbersome for people or victims of racism to focus on themselves only, right? What can I do? What can I contribute? It should be beyond I. And we should move to we. Right. It should be all of us supporting each other to try to do this work. We can't survive by ourselves. And so therapy is one way to help ourselves. But again, it's very individual and limited. It's also limited if it draws on frameworks like psychiatric and psychological ones that say it's this is just an individual problem. That are racist. Yeah, that are racist. Right. And so if it's using those frameworks, it's really limited then in what it can do. So I'm so glad that you have a therapist that you feel like is listening to you and working with you. Like fit matters so much. It took us four years. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there there have been numerous incidents and I hope my therapist is not listening where I was going to drop her and move on. (laughs) We have an interesting relationship, but now we are in a good place. Now we are in a happy place. Yeah, it's its own relationship. It's work. Mimi, tell me, have you put any systems in place that would ensure open and emergency is not commodified? That's a great question. I'm always worried about commodification of self-care. Because that's what's been happening, where self-care becomes this, again, individual thing that you can achieve through all these products and all these classes and all these things that you can purchase. I hope that open emergency can resist that because of its focus on the collective and its grounding in 
anti-racist, anti-ableist kind of approaches that push back against that kind of individualism and that kind of depoliticization of wellness, making it apolitical. I love that. So I hope so. I actually don't think it has much commercial quality anyway. <laughs> like <laughs> ALR doesn't make any money. And so I don't think anyone else is going to be able to make any money off of it. But the tarot deck is polished enough that could have some commercial qualities to it. And so, yeah, that's something I think, thanks for bringing that up to like keep an eye on if any co-optation, right, starts happening with that deck. In the end, Mimi, if you were to define America in the context of this tension between wellness and unwellness, how Mm. would you do that? Mm. Even bigger question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, define America in the context of the tension between wellness and unwellness. That's a great question. I actually think you've sort of answered it because I do think that compulsory wellness is constitutive of American experience. I've discovered over the last few years that so much of what it means to live in the U.S., but also to try to become American, right, especially for immigrant and marginalized communities, is about engaging this idea of wellness and denying our unwellness as it is happening around us and to us by the state. (laughs) And so I actually think it's a part and parcel of how race and nation and state and belonging work in the U.S. That's such a good point, because as an immigrant, when I think of it, wellness is a prerequisite for belonging in the U.S. Yes, exactly. For non-white folks. Exactly, exactly. Yes. And the bar is very high the for how to achieve that. The bar is so fucking high Yeah, for us. Yeah. Yeah, you totally get it. You totally get it. (laughs) (laughs) This was a fun conversation. I am so glad we were able to do this. And thank you for making me think, introspect, reflect and rethink ideas of unwellness. And I don't think I will ever see wellness and unwellness in the same light again. Oh, it's amazing. Thank you. I am so glad we did this. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for really so deeply engaging the work. I feel very honored and for asking really hard questions because I think that's what the work asks for. I want the hard questions and I want to keep doing work that can feed us in the ways that we need. So thank you so much. Yep, this interview was so good yet tough. I had questions because I didn't understand a lot of stuff that I was reading. And I'm so glad that Mimi and I had this conversation. I'm pretty sure that I will never look at unwellness or wellness for that matter the same way ever again. And yes, it should be a collective endeavor. Because external factors, environmental factors, socioeconomic, racial factors impact us profoundly and make us who we are and how we interact with the world. If you liked this episode, please rate it, give us a review or share it with a friend who you think may like this conversation. This is how we grow. I know I've said this a million times, but we do have a Patreon. How do you support 
an independent, mostly women of color podcast by subscribing. You can subscribe for as low as $5 a month. Just think about giving up on one Starbucks coffee every month and you'll be supporting this amazing, incredible, honest, unapologetic space. This episode was produced by me, Sadia Khan, written by Yudi Liu. Our editorial review is done by Shay Yu and our incredible editor is Hazik Ahmed Farid. Until next time, take care. Thank you.